If you have your Bibles, please open to Exodus chapter 20. We'll pick back up with our study of the book of Exodus this evening. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, and verse 13 will be our focus, but we will read the entirety of the chapter together this evening. Or rather, not the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read through verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you tonight. For you are our only hope, our only salvation, our only refuge. O Lord, as we continue and look at these, your commands that you have given to us, Lord, we pray that you will help us to have a better understanding of them, that we might come to a greater love for your law, that we might have a more thorough knowledge of it, that we might be better able to keep it, that in all of our actions, in all of our thoughts, and in all of our words, we might bring glory to your name. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this past week, I was listening to a series of interviews with former Army Ranger John Lovell. Uh, perhaps some of you have heard this name, uh, but for those of you who haven't, John Lovell is a devout Christian, a former Army Ranger during the early days of the global war on terror and the author and subsequent founder of the Warrior Poet Society, as well as a YouTube personality. And during the interview, John was recounting one of the times in the war where he had almost died and how his faith during that moment kept him steady. And the interviewer then asked him a very direct question. How do you square your Christian faith with the killing of other men? It's a good question. And John responded well. He explained that the traditional uh, interpretation of it, the traditional rendering of it, thou shall not kill, 
is best translated as thou shalt not murder, what we have here in our ESV. And he also explains that elsewhere in Scripture, it is very clear that at times the sword is a necessary tool, a tool to restrain evil and to uphold justice. And he quotes the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Suffice it to say, it was a well-nuanced and accurate answer that he gave, which complicates things for us, doesn't it? Because if the commandment were simply do not kill ever, it would be a whole lot easier for us to, to explain what it is that it means and subsequently to follow it. But instead, in order for us to keep this command rightly or even to attempt to keep this command, we must first dig into the depths of its meaning and see what it is that God requires of us this day. And that's going to be our goal this evening. We're going to examine the commandment in two ways. First, we're going to focus on considering the outward working and application of the law. See, the outward, in, uh, the outward working and application of the law. And then secondly, we're going to explore the inner uh, or, or heart meanings and application of the law. So outward working and application of the law, inward meanings and application of the law. So first, the outward working and application of the law. In order for us to understand the extent of this command, I think it is helpful to create a number of categories that will help us to sort of parse through the application of the law to everyday life. And as we examine each of these, I think we'll begin to see a general pattern emerge that will establish for us something of a theology of life that we can hold on to and use uh, that we might set a standard for following this command. There are four categories that I'll present to you this evening. The first category that I want us to consider is the most simple of them, and that is murder. By murder, I mean the premeditated, planned, and intentional, unjust taking of life. I'll say that again. Murder is the premeditated, planned, and intentional, unjust taking of life. This is the most basic of the categories and the one that is explicitly, directly condemned in our text and in the pages of Scripture as a whole. And the key to understanding this and, and understanding it in light of Scripture is the forethought that accompanies the act. It's the forethought that accompanies the act. Interestingly, the same forethought is what Jesus brings attention to in the Gospel of Matthew, but we'll come back to that in a moment. What defines something as murder, what sets it apart as murder as opposed to uh, just and righteous killing or killing in, in a time of war, is the fact that it is premeditated, it is pre-thought out, planned and intentional. Now, there are a couple of keys to this that are worth noting here, a couple of things worth considering. First, understanding this in light of justice. This commandment has specifically in mind those acts which are outside of a biblical system of justice and which have no regard for the sanctity of the law or the sanctity of God's righteous rule. There are, as we're going to come to see in a moment, just acts that take a life which are acceptable if undesirable. 
But murder, that which is being prohibited here in these Ten Commandments, is always unjust. It is always outside of the scope of God's law. Second key to this is understanding the forethought of it. The premeditation of the forethought spoken of is, is clarified elsewhere in Scripture. Obviously, Jesus clarifies that it bears with it the guilt of murder as he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, even if we don't act upon those thoughts. And again, we're going to come back to this in more detail in a few minutes. But even the Old Testament broadly defines the idea of murder in such a way that excuse is almost inescapable. We read just a little while ago in Numbers chapter 35, uh, as Moses expounds on what defines someone as a murderer, what defines an act as murder as opposed to an accident or manslaughter or manslaying. And he determines in these verses, as we read in 16 through 21, that it becomes murder because of the forethought and the planning of it. If you remember what he said, he he noted that if the offender uses a weapon or a tool of iron, wood, or stone, then they're guilty of murder. And the idea here is that they had enough forethought to think, I'm going to grab this thing that will assist me in harming this individual. They had enough thought and enough desire of of deciding that they were going to harm someone that they went and got a tool or a weapon to help them do it. They intentionally used something that they knew could or would permanently cause harm and therefore were guilty of premeditated malice. Or, he gives another example there in those same verses, even someone who only uses their hands but they do so after lying in wait or in revenge for a different act that had been done. They may not use a tool, but they have planned this out, and they are ready to take this person's life out of their own anger and their own desire for revenge. It's this forethought that makes the act murder. Third key to understanding this is the penalty. The penalty for murder, we read it again and again and again in Numbers chapter 35, the penalty is death. This is the simple application of the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth principle held up in biblical law. But it goes beyond that, and it rests in, ultimately, the, fact, the theological understanding of what constitutes a person and, therefore, what murder does. You see, we believe that man is made in the image of God, and even sinful man still has parts of the image of God in him, albeit a marred and broken image. This image is what sets apart mankind from the animals. It's what makes us uh, greater than the animals. And it's this image that when life is taken, is destroyed, at least humanly speaking, when murder takes place. That is why the penalty is as severe as it is. And so a question arises. Why then do we have the death penalty? Doesn't that double the destruction of the image. The short answer is yes, it does. And as such, it's a lamentable yet necessary requirement of the law. Moses goes on to explain that it is a necessary part of the law at the end of Numbers 35. Perhaps you caught it there at the end in verse 33 when he writes, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
the penalty for murder is death. This is the first category, the the first exposition of the law. This is what it is explicitly condemning. The murder of another individual, another human being. The taking of their life because you thought about it beforehand for whatever reason and decided to do it. Okay? Second category, that of accidents. The second category is accidents. And by accidents, I simply mean acts that result in the taking of a life unintentionally or without premeditation or forethought. Once more, Moses expounds on this law, on these Ten Commandments in Numbers 35, demonstrating that not every life-taking act is an act of murder. Once more, it's helpful for us to make a few key observations here. First, one of the keys to it being an accident is the fact that it is unintentional. And Moses makes clear that sometimes accidents do happen. He offers up the example, uh, once again, of someone dropping a stone from a high place that then strikes and kills someone. The thrower of the stone neither saw the individual nor had any enmity towards that individual whatsoever, and therefore, as such, is not guilty of murder. Later on, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, he gives yet another example of a man who goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and When he goes to swing the axe, the head flies off and he kills his neighbor. And once more, Moses explains that this man is not guilty of violating this commandment. He's not guilty of murder. This is contrasted with acts that, while unintentional, are, shall we say, intentionally negligent. Just because something is unintentional doesn't mean that it is therefore free from guilt. We're given another example. In Exodus chapter 21, here you can just flip over maybe even a page, or maybe it's on the same page for you. In verses 28 and 29, Moses expounds the law, and he he makes provision for the death by someone else's animals. And listen to what he writes there in verses 28 and 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But then notice this. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. Here Moses is making a clear distinction between an accident and negligence. While the offender did not intend for his ox to gore another individual, by his willful negligence someone lost their life, and as such their blood is upon his head. So there's accidents, and then there are things that would often be put in that category of accidents, but that are under willful negligence that are still a violation of the command. And once more, note here the penalty that sets this apart. Just as with murder, there is always a consequence to any action that takes a life. While the person who is responsible for the accident is not guilty, of murder, they're not guilty of the blood of the individual and as such are not going to be sentenced to death. They are still, they still have destroyed the image of God in a person and thus there are consequences for it. They must flee their homes to live in a local sanctuary city until the high priest dies. For some, that might mean only a short time, but for others, it would mean years, years away from their home, away from their land, away from their family, living in the closest city of refuge. Regardless of how long it is, be it a short time or a long time, their lives 
were uprooted, and they were forced to change every part of their lives as a consequence for their actions, accidental though they were. And I want to note here for just a moment, uh, while we're not in a passage that is talking about cities of refuge, I think it's worth mentioning here that this practice is ultimately a picture of what Christ does for us. We are guilty of murder, adultery, theft, lying, coveting, breaking all of the laws of God. And yet, when we flee to Christ, though we are guilty, he washes us clean. Though we have blood guilt, his blood pays the price. It's the gospel even here in the midst of the law, in the midst of the Old Testament. Okay, so we have murder. And we have accidents. The third category I'll briefly talk about here is self-defense. This is yet another category that provides an important distinction. That is, the taking of life is the taking of life in defense of, a, of oneself or one's family, murder. And the short answer is ultimately no. Once again, in Exodus chapter 22, just two, verse, or two chapters from here, Moses gives us another example of a man who breaks into steel and who is subsequently struck so that he dies. And he notes that if this takes place during the night, then there is no guilt on the part of the man who is defending himself and his family. There is a caveat that's made in Exodus 22 regarding the time of day, and we'll cover that in more detail when we come to chapter 22 in a few weeks. But for now, suffice it to say that the caveat of, uh, is a question of preventableness. Once again, this implies and teaches us this principle that we should never desire the taking of another life. We should never desire the destruction of the image of God in the individual. The simple principle here is that we are right to do whatever we can to uphold and to protect life. We have a right and even an obligation to protect our lives, to protect the lives of our family, to protect the lives of those around us. The Westminster Divines, in writing the Shorter Catechism, make this principle abundantly clear. They ask uh, there in the question, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? And the answer that they give, the Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. The same principle is similarly, similarly applied in our fourth and final category. Fourth category, war. Growing up, uh, my siblings and I loved the movie Sergeant York. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it's a true story based on the real-life man named Alvin York. York was a renowned and award-winning sharpshooter from the hills of Tennessee, who one night miraculously is converted from a life devoted to drinking and violence to faith in Christ. His whole life turns around, ceasing his violent, violent behaviors, quitting drinking, and seeking to serve God in everything that he does. And shortly after his conversion, America enters World War I, and Alvin is drafted. And upon being drafted, he begins to really wrestle with whether or not he can kill another human being in good conscience leaning towards taking conscientious objection despite a desire to serve his country, he eventually changes his mind after speaking with his commander who is also a Christian and who points him to various portions of Scripture about fighting for that which is right and good. And when I was little, um, and when I say little, uh, 11 or 12, um, this conundrum that he faces seemed silly to me. Of course you should fight. At least that's what I thought. 
But really, this question should plague us as Christians. It should never be an easy thing to take another's life. And it's something that we should desire to avoid at all costs. The key is in keeping a right balance between desiring life and acknowledging, as the writer of Ecclesiastes does, that there is indeed a time for war and a time to kill. Though an unfortunate reality of the fall, war is nonetheless a reality. And while it's not something that we ought to seek after, uh, we should never again desire to take another human life. When it is done in war, this is not considered murder. This much is clear as God commands Israel to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, wiping out godless, evil inhabitants and taking the land for their own possession. God commands them to go to war, to fight for what is just, to fight for what is right, and they are not held guilty for breaking these Ten Commandments. When we take these four categories as a whole and we begin to put these principles together, a clearer picture begins to emerge from the very simple and straightforward command. That is, that we are to love life and to protect and value it whenever and wherever possible, while also punishing evil, especially those who take the lives of others. What results from this is a theology of life that lends itself to a broad application in everyday life, everyday experience. But before we get there, at least specifically, Let's briefly consider for a moment our second point this evening. That is the inner or, or heart meanings and application of the law. We've already noted a handful of times that the defining characteristic of what makes something murder and what makes something an accident is premeditation. Be that an intentional plotting out of someone's death or merely enough forethought to use a weapon, the result is the same, murder. Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, expounds the subject even further. In chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, he speaks of the law, saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire." What Christ is saying is that it's not the outward act accompanied by premeditation that is murder, but the premeditation itself that is murder. Anyone who is angry at his brother, who desires harm or wants something other than what is best for his brother is guilty of murder. The Apostle John makes this even more clear, writing in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He goes on, calling the Christian to obedience, writing, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In this, he points out both the literal act of self-sacrificing love that was Christ dying on the cross for the sake of his children, while also pointing out its counterpart, the giving of oneself for the sake of loving another well giving up our own desires, our own own wants, that those around us might be best served. Just as murder begins in the heart and in the mind, so too does love begin in the heart and in the mind. So then what is our takeaway for this evening? First, love life. Love the life that God has given to you. Value it and cherish it. 
And even as you do so, value and cherish the lives of others, the lives of those around you. How do we keep this commandment, this this sixth commandment? By doing every lawful thing within our power to preserve our lives and the lives of others. This is the positive side of the commandment, to love the lives that God has created and has given breath. True love for the life that God has given leaves little room for neglecting the poor and needy or denying anyone the value that God has given to them. We cannot possibly be racist towards another human being if we truly love God and follow this commandment. We cannot possibly be selfish or stingy with our money or our possessions when there are those out there who are in need if we truly love our neighbor as we ought and care for his life. We ought to hate those things which are contrary to the law of God and which celebrate the taking of life. The most obvious example is abortion. It is impossible to follow God's law and to support abortion. And note that this is where having a proper theology of life comes in handy. I've heard it posited that because the Bible doesn't ever explicitly address abortion or even the killing of the unborn, that Christians can't actually oppose it, biblically speaking. But that's simply not the case. When we read the scriptures, when we understand what it is that they teach us about murder and about life, we must quickly come to the conclusion, the only realization that we can come to is that life, all life, is precious and that it should be preserved whenever possible. That means the lives of the old as well as the young, the parent as well as the unborn child, all life is precious in the eyes of God. Scripture does not distinguish between them, and neither should we. This commandment ought to bring us great joy. It ought to bring us great joy. The wages of sin is death, the Apostle Paul says, but thanks be to God that through the finished work of Christ, we need not fear death. Though we'll face it one day as a result of the fall, it will not be a final death. Death is the final enemy to be defeated by Christ, and one day we will rise again and live forever with Christ. We need not die as murderers condemned by the law because Christ has done it on our behalf. That is wondrous news. And so even as we reflect on what we're commanded, we ought also to reflect on how it is that Christ has kept it perfectly and done so for us. At the end of the day, this topic is a broad one, one with with much to be studied. But I hope you can come away this night with a better understanding of what it is that God calls you to in his law and what he requires of you. That in every thought, every word, and every deed, you might come to love his law and to serve him for his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so very thankful that you have not condemned us according to your law, but have judged us according to Christ's righteous fulfillment of it. O Lord, it is only through him that we have any hope. We have each and every person, every one of us in this room broken this commandment, probably in this past week, if not this past day. And O Lord, we are in need of Christ even more. We are in need of his grace daily, his mercy poured out new each morning, that we might have a desire to love your law, that we might love life, that we might see it as the gift that it is from you, that we might do everything in our power at all times and in all places to preserve life and to promote life. 
Father, we pray that you will help us to live out your law, that you will help us to serve Christ this day and forevermore, that in all things you might be glorified. We pray it in his name. Amen.